Hello, this is episode 19 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and this week's guest continues our soccer theme of the month. It's Tom Warville, newly minted staff writer for The Athletic and formerly a senior data analyst for Opta, a soccer data and analytics company now owned by Stats Perform. Tom spoke at the Opta Pro Forum earlier this month, and I sat down with him in London to talk about his presentation, which focused on how goal kicks have been affected by a rule change, allowing them to be played inside the penalty area. We also chat about his career path from blogger and podcaster to Opta, the state of soccer analytics, communicating through data and visualization, why he's joining The Athletic and what he'll do there, and being called names by Sam Allardyce. Then Albert Larcata will join me to react and wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with The Athletic's Tom Warvel. We are joined now on Expected Value by Tom Warvel, new staff writer for The Athletic, formerly senior data analyst with Opta, now owned by Stats Perform. We'll get into some of his work and where he's going with it. But first, Tom, I want to ask you about the Opta Pro Forum from last week. You had a presentation about that examined the new short goal kick rule and how it's impacting the game. Uh, tell me how you went about analyzing that and then kind of your high-level takeaways. So the question was kind of posed originally with um, me and a couple of other guys that starts perform working with the FA. Uh, and we were kind of working with the FA and trying to understand like what are some sort of performance level questions that they weren't answering, uh, stuff that we could get insights that would impact their game model and, and kind of how they play the game. So it was a fairly open open remit and I pulled together some questions with the other data analysts that starts to perform, uh, Johnny Whitmore and Peter McKeever, two really good guys in terms of data visualization and, and kind of understanding uh, you know, use of data in, in soccer. Um, uh, and a few of the topics we thought were like time-wasting strategies by teams. Uh, that was kind of borne out of the fact that I think the US at the World Cup scored early in quite a few games and then they, they've killed the game really, really well. But a big thing was the new goal kick rule and how has that impacted teams and how they build out from the back. So um, yeah, my, my process with that was start with, okay, what is a goal kick? How often does it happen in a game? And then look at how have the rates of short goal kicks and long goal kicks changed because of this rule, and kind of went down the rabbit hole from there, really. What did you learn about how the tendencies have shifted in short, long goal kicks over the last year? Yeah, so the, this one really surprised me, where in Serie A, it's jumped up from 40% of goal kicks are short, and I kind of define short goal kicks as those that are within 40 metres of a team's own goal. So you kind of draw an arc just outside of the, the kind of defensive third. To 40, from 40%, sorry, to 60%, roughly, um, which is a pretty big jump. And, and that was the highest um, share of all kind of the t- these top five European leagues. Uh, and then on the team side, you have teams that like Brighton have gone from just under 6% of short goal kicks um, to having 78.2% of, of goal kicks being short. So that shows you the impact of Graham Potter and his philosophy, that, uh, you know, and how that's impacted kind of Matt Ryan and how they look to play out. And that again, also informs the fact that they buy a really good ball progress at the back in, in Adam Webster from Bristol City in the Championship uh, and how him and Lewis Dunk are kind of really pivotal for, for Brighton and building out because they get the ball short more often than not. I remember you were talking about chance creation for both teams, which I thought was interesting because you don't think about at first how the short goal kick might impact from a defensive standpoint. What did the chance creation show you when you looked at that how that was impacted by the short goal kicks yeah so that's something where i mean i'm i'm an arsenal fan and there was a game this year against watford um and 
Arsenal under that was under you know Emery at the time were really keen on still passing out from the back. It's a risky strategy, I think, when teams are really looking to press you if you're not capable of dealing with the press. Uh, and you know Arsenal don't have the most confident ball players at the back in in Scott Mustafi, Socrates, and David Luiz has his his faults. I think he can be a good passer at times, but maybe not so um, under pressure. And that kind of prompted me to look at okay, not a lot of teams are able to really generate chances going forwards, but is there is it just like a heuristic or a bias that you think that these short goal kicks are more dangerous than the numbers actually tell you? And that's something I really wanted to dig into, and I think that's something that is born out of my interest analytics being the kind of like myth-busting element. Um, and kind of found that short goal kicks on the whole do actually produce, 3% of the time there's kind of a shot that's conceded, uh, the XG of that shot is usually higher than that of the kind of chance that you could generate. So... There's a big risk-reward trade-off with short goal kicks seemingly from this data. And on the flip side, though, these are very small numbers. 3% of the time you're conceding a chance of a short goal kick, that's probably not uniform across all teams. There's probably some element of team strength baked into those numbers that if you tease that out a bit more, you might find the better teams that can pass, you know, concede less shots and the, the bad teams to try and play out actually are conceding most of the shots. And the ball progression factor, if I remember right, the short goal kicks tended to eventually get further up the field than the long goal kicks. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, I kind of looked at like, not just like completion rates of goal kicks, but also, you know, do teams win second balls and where do they, or if, you know, they play long and they're fouled, where do they start the next sequence? So there's a kind of like sequential slant to the analysis. But even through that, it seemed that teams that go short more often than not get further up the pitch on average than teams that go long. And I think the biggest thing in that is that you have a, a pretty big risk of ruin um, if you go long because teams can, if they go either you know on the wings, they can kick the ball straight out of play. And from watching a ton of clips, there's a lot of goal kicks that are wasted by trying to aim for someone on the wing and, and they kind of lose 50-50 um, and the ball gets turned over um, or the ball goes straight out of play. Um, so yeah, I think that was really interesting, something that we've kind of seen more teams trying to play out the bat now because you know, intuitively you might have realised that you're further away and you're not playing like the percentages further upfield, but you have more control of, of what your next action is and, and what you do next. Anything else that you uh, maybe were surprised by or any big takeaways that you had from looking at all this info? Yeah, I think the biggest one is probably just like the... It kind of reinforced to me the fact that short goal kicks can be useful and it probably more prompted to me like areas of future research. So embedding a level of like pressure or understanding how teams are effective at playing out you know, when there's a, a press. Um, some of the video you watch, teams will take a short goal kick, but they're playing against like a mid or a low block. So that first 30 to 40 meters is essentially free progress anyway, which you want to take out. Also, like a couple of club guys came up to me afterwards and said like, this is really cool research because it, it backs up what I've done with my, my sports code, you know, clippings and things like that. And they can do a smaller scale analysis and show like playing out from the back is risky, but it's useful. And this kind of reinforced what they believed, but I'm using a much larger data set. So, um, yeah, it's always nice to get good feedback on this stuff. And it, it also helps when it aligns with what coaches and analysts are thinking about the game as well. All right, let's get into your path, just kind of career path, where you've uh, come from and where you're headed. Where did the interest in, we'll just say, analytics in sport come from for you? And then how did you start addressing that through college and beyond? It's probably the same as everyone where like, I read Moneyball when I was younger. Then from that, like I was fortunate to have a course in my second year at university uh, up in Leeds. And one of the lecturers was Bill Gerrard who has in the past worked with Billy Bean at the San Jose Earthquakes, and he's done some stuff with AZ Akmar and 
uh, rugby club Saracens as well. And Bill taught a, a module about the economics of football. And all of that stuff was, was kind of like similar to Moneyball, but it was very much around like amortization of contracts and the more like the balance sheet side of football. And we started touching on a bit around like measuring performance of data, but this was back in, uh, I think around 2013, 2014, and it wasn't kind of in the, the media limelight as much as it is now. But I remember like my, my main memory of like, I was on a placement year at a management consultancy firm uh, in my third year at university. Um, and I was at a uh, broadcasting company. I was really not enjoying it. Um, and I took a break at a weekend to go visit a friend. And on the train over, I uh, listened to the Starts One podcast, which ate you know, the first iteration of it with, with Ben Pugsley and, and Technician. Uh, and they were talking about, oh, it's the summer of analytics and hockey. Because all these hockey bloggers got sucked up in this big like brain vacuum of, of the bloggers joining the teams. And that to me was just the coolest thing because I really wanted to work in sports. And then the advice from there was get a body of work, do a, have a blog, have some research and, and kind of build a presence. And that for me was my kind of like drive to write. I don't want to work in a consultancy, a management consultancy when I finish uni. I want to work for a team, work in sport. And that's where the kind of energy and drive was, was born out of really. So then around that time is when you started Analytics FC, which was a podcast website with Sam Gregory, who we had on the, the show not too long ago. How did that come about? How did you two connect and then decide how to move forward with this idea? Yeah, so Analytics FC was just the name of, of my blog to start with. And then me and Sam were in what was probably a lot smaller of an analytics community at the time. And we trade ideas back and forth on kind of DMs on Twitter. And then I kind of said, you know, do you want to start a podcast because I'm getting to start one and it could be fun kind of thing. Uh, and it was obviously a bit of a risk at that time, but um, we started it. We never spoke together before. So the first podcast was hella awkward essentially because um you're skyping with someone you've you didn't, we didn't even have our cameras on as well so i think that's even like more awkward that you're just hearing this voice in the abyss but yeah we did like i think 30 odd episodes of that and then yeah started building out club contacts from there and a bit of consultancy consultancy work on the side and then sam moved to london for his masters and we we met up and we started doing stuff more like visiting clubs together opta was hiring a couple of data scientists we kind of me bear sam and a couple of others kind of like all applied and had our interviews at the same time we didn't really took all very coy so we're kind of battling for jobs but equally like want to work together um and then yeah I started with Sam in, in July of 2016 at, at Opta and we had a few really good years of kind of like building out the initial like expected goals model with um, Johannes Harkins who used to work at, at Opta as well and then like getting XG in the media and working with clubs and a really good fun few years working with Sam having like gone from this like really nerdy bedroom recorded podcast to actually like having a job in London in, in football so it was really cool. In the early days of the, the podcast, as I said, you're talking to teams. So are they, like, did they hear the podcast or read some of the stuff and then kind of reach out to you? What, what was that process like without, you know, giving away who's contacting or what they're trying to figure out? But just what was the process like when you suddenly realized, hey, something, we might be able to do something here? Yeah, it was very much kind of both. Like the blogs had more content, which is like easier to um, digest. I think it's like the beauty of like a lot of podcasts say like expected value podcasts is you're not talking about numbers. And I think it's hard to pass and, and think through that stuff in a audible format. And I think the blogs are really good for us to like show research and show ideas. And the podcast were a good way to get into the minds of, of different guests. So we had like Gab Marcotti on and uh, Michael Cox uh, and Damien Camoli and a few others as well. So we had like bigger thinkers and, and minds in football and that was kind of 
yeah, a bit more maybe maybe media focused, and the blog was kind of the more hardcore research stuff. So clubs would would see that stuff. We'd go out to them or send them reports to try and you know get a bite. And at that time, clubs were less willing and interested. But you did have the odd one which which would kind of dip their toe in and say, "Do a scout report for us. Show us what you can do." So um, yeah, whereas I think if we did the same thing now, we you know we kind of joked recently that we should just all quit and start a consultancy because I think there's a lot more appetite now for smaller consultancy projects uh, within within clubs. So how have you seen, even in just five years, basically, you've been kind of in the industry, so to speak. How have you seen the way that clubs are using data change in those five, just the last five, six years? Yeah, I think there's a lot more people in clubs now who just like understand data a lot more and, and they're not kind of like using it because of how they've seen others use it. They think through these problems a lot more. They've got access to tools and investment in tools like uh, you know, like ProVision and, uh, and other such tools on the market that allow them to investigate the data. And I think there's a a kind of like level of con- competency there with analysts where the people in football now are probably less of a football background first and foremost uh, and, you know, have come into football without doing the coaching route or without doing a, a sports science course. So you're definitely getting a, a mix of minds at the training ground now, which is adding a lot of value to, to different teams, yeah. So let's talk about your what you've done at Opta. So senior data analyst, what does that mean? What are you doing with, I guess I'll lay a little bit of groundwork. Opta is the one collecting all the event level data for you know, hundreds of leagues probably around the world. And so you are working with that data and working with, I guess you can explain, what do you do with that data in this role at Opta? Yeah, so so the time at Opta was um, the first couple of years I was a, a data scientist. So I was kind of cutting my teeth learning kind of the modeling side of things. And that to me was was less engaging because I like being able to speak to the end user and, and essentially, you know, customers of this data and, and show them how to use it best. So I started like with a few modeling tasks about expected goals, like I said, and other things. Um, and then the analyst role essentially is working with clubs and, and the media to understand and kind of educate them around best practice use of data and also what these new things mean. The data science team we had at, at Starts Perform the End working on some really cool models, but the output sometimes could be fairly abstract and you need to craft a story around them to get to get buy-in. Whereas I think with expected goals, the use case kind of is self-explanatory and so it sells itself a little bit. So yeah, the the role was with like we did some odd consultancy work. I did a fair few presentations around the world, showing kind of the work we do to different audiences. So that was a big privilege being able to to go to New York and, and Australia and show different people in different sports like what the current state of analytics in in football was. And then a lot of kind of like tool building internally. So our like kind of like frontline infantry as it were is our editorial staff. They're the ones that are getting stuff out to the media. Um, they're the ones who, who do all the hard work pulling together facts and, and commentator packs and all this stuff. And if we couldn't convince them of the value of a new metric, they wouldn't use it. And so they were very much, uh, to bring it back to sport, they were very much like our coach who we had to like convince of the value of this and, and use it in your process. So we build out tools for them, graphics packages and, and things like that to make the stuff look pretty and get it used. And if customers use this stuff, they you know, opposite can get paid for it. And that was a lot of our role was being translators and um, getting this stuff used. So we could do probably multiple podcasts on this, but what are what's a key or two that you found in basically translating data into more easily digestible forms? Yeah, so I, I mean, the big thing that I bang the drum on is kind of like visuals, making stuff look pretty, because I just think that you have to, and it's something that there's a great web publication called The Pudding, do really well, and they kind of say that, um, the biggest way to 
like use data is to show data not to like tell people ab- about it and let it kind of tell the story itself so we worked a lot on on the kind of visual storytelling and using that to kind of like sell a vision or sell a story of a, a metric and then also it's just like finding the right narrative and at the start kind of using that level of confirmation bias to get people to buy into a new metric so you know here's a, a stat that proves why harry kane is good or why allison is good use that as a hook to get people to buy in and then you know when they're more comfortable with it uh, they're more prone to use it for, for other use cases. So, um, yeah, there's a bit of like the behavioral economics element there, which, um, yeah, I think can work really well. Yeah, I had similar success at ESPN. When you start dealing with analysts, sometimes the best way to get them to buy in is, hey, here's this number that backs up what you said. Uh, and then they come back to you and it's like, oh, do you have anything to support this theory or not support this theory? And it's it sounds kind of obvious and almost elementary, but I think and from what you're saying too that's a pretty easy way and a good entry point to to reach people who may not be familiar with the data right and i think there's uh, also another kind of like trick we'd use is if you know we gave someone an idea of like oh this is how you could use the data and then they kind of come to say come to use it and then you kind of say well you know present it as if it was their idea a little bit and and give them the credit for you know, being the one to use that in in a piece or being confident to go and use it because if someone sees that as as you know it came from them or they helped bring that idea or that metric or that visual to a client, they'd be more prone because to use it because it's kind of their work. And we you know we want to be seen as translators, but we don't want to be seen as like forcing stuff through people to the end client. Um, so it's kind of tough to balance at times, but I think we did a, a decent job. One of the things you've worked on the last most recently at Opta is. Uh, team playing styles and and underlying player performance that goes along with that. What is the process like as you develop those metrics? Because those are things that are hard to pull out of a fluid game. And that's one of the criticisms here of soccer analytics. You can't capture a fluid game, et cetera. And yet you've done some of that. So what was the process, uh, kind of the thinking and putting those models together to extract something that's tough to pull out of numbers? This is all, I think this is an interesting question because with expected goals, you can kind of more easily validate that because you can just go to a ton of video. Shots are fairly um, sparse really in the game. So you can go through that and understand like, you know, is your model looking correct? Um, but I've always kind of leaned on like the Dean Olive's idea of like, if you have a list of 10 and you recognize eight and two names are new, then that looks good. But if you have a list and it's got like a bunch of Burnley players on top on some sort of like possession derived metric, then maybe there's something wrong in the modeling or, or how you're presenting that. So that's a good question. I think it's, it's mainly around like understanding, does this match up with your eye test? So there's got to be that, you know, you have to enjoy and know of football to work on uh, the sport really. And I've had a situation in the past where I've been asked to work on projects in, in say rugby or cricket and I just don't have the domain expertise there. So to then have to validate my own work, I can't do that. And I've always shied away from those situations because, you know, I don't want to be able to do work that ultimately might become across, you know, as dishonest and you can't really validate whether the stuff's any good or not. So I think it helps a lot to pay a lot of focus and interest in the world of football right now. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And the cliche criticism of we'll say analytics and big picture is, you know, watch the game nerd, but it's, it's important when you say you have to have that foundation at the very least, if not a more intricate knowledge to know that models are lining up or these numbers make sense or whatever it might be. So you're not throwing out, like you said, yeah, this Burnley player is the best you know, possession or something like that. You got to have that foundation, right? But also there is the flip side of where modeling has helped me change the way that I actually do view games as well. And it's mainly just because I think football is fluid. Yeah. 
but the ball does go out of play and there are some sort of stoppages and I think that you can view football it's it's fluid if you want to see it as fluid but equally I think it's kind of like a it's a very sequential game of different types of um, facets of play that take place over time it's not all go if a 90 minute match has only got on average like 58 minutes of ball and play time is evidently not as fluid as we think it is Um, and if you can break break down the game into those like different elements then I think you can start to get a, a good picture of good players and good teams so yeah I'm, I'm really interested as to why it's taken so long for us to, to kind of dispel that notion that it's you know impossible to analyze because it's so fluid but yeah I'm, I'm glad that we're getting new approaches with you know event data there's a lot of stuff you can still get out of that and tracking data as well which everyone says is the next frontier I still think that it's a couple of years away because we don't have you know, there's not a lot of it in the public domain. There's not a lot of people who have experience working that, with that data. Whereas with basketball, that stuff was public for a while. You had people who could spend time working with it. So, um, but yeah, we're getting there, and I think we've we've made good strides in the last kind of four or five years. You've moved on to the Athletic now as a staff writer. What's that role going to look like for you? Yeah, classic. When when everyone says, you know, where are you moving to, and a few people joke the Athletic because everyone's moved there, and I actually have. So that's a that was a good one. Um, yeah, mainly going to be their kind of football analytics writer. And they have kind of similar guys on staff in the American sports. And I kind of had a few conversations with them and, um, you know, found the niche that I can offer is football analytics and understanding the metrics and telling stories with data. And the niche that they had to fill was exactly that. So, yeah, I'm really excited to get started and, you know, use data to tell these stories and essentially do stuff I've been doing at Opta for a while, but actually you know, be at the wheel, so to speak, and present those analysis and, and outputs um, directly on columns um, with a byline, which will be my first kind of foray into writing as well, apart from the blogging side. So I'm just really excited to learn like a new skill. What's the appetite for something like that? Obviously, it exists if your job is existing, but especially in the UK, because I've come from a US angle, and I feel like I have a good grasp of what the US perspective is. What's the appetite from the public for soccer or here football analytics in the UK it's an interesting question um, mainly because I think the role that I have is a really unique one in the UK um, whereas a lot of football writers kind of are a football writer first and foremost and then they get kind of the stats background over time and I've come at it the other way of I've done football stats football analytics work for five or six years now and I'm now moving into a journalism role so I think that the appetite is there that we can see that more and more journalists are using data and I think that it's a great opportunity for me and for the athletics to kind of take it to the next level and you know we're not just going to use the tools everyone else uses we're going to use the raw data we're going to dig into this stuff and have the capacity to build new visuals and you know new models and new metrics and, and be very bespoke with this stuff so the sort of content I'll write will hopefully be quite unique in the market and I think success for me in this role looks like other papers trying to copycat what this looks like. There's some value there that we can definitely get out of it, of doing something slightly different. What sort of data will you be able to use? Obviously, you're at Opta. You have Opta data and access to exclusive things and stuff like that. What sort of stuff are you going to be building on at The Athletic? Yeah, so I'll be using the same event data that I had you know, uh, access to it adopter um so you know therefore the world's my oyster a little bit in terms of the same questions i was answering adopter i can answer at the athletic now i've got a bit of work to do to turn it into a nice database like i had adopter but um this is the same quality and depth of data that i had then i'll have access to now so um yeah that's why it's so exciting because 
there's no real other place that does journalism first and foremost. Like you have the Statsman blog and the Opta Pro blog and various places that put out bespoke content. Um, but a lot of these are aimed at people within football or football analytics. And that is only ever going to be a subset of the wider footballing world, um, which we're trying to aim for, really. All right, let's wrap things up with our plain favorites segment. What's your favorite number? Uh, seven. Because? I always thought that when I was playing football when I was younger, seven was it's the coolest looking number. I don't know if there's something aesthetically around it, um, but I'd always go for the number seven shirt for playing football. If not, I'd get the number 17. Um, yeah, I've always liked the number seven. And great players have, have worn the seven as well. So, You have a favorite athlete growing up? Uh, I think it was Jerry Henry. Like he was the man when I was growing up. I got into football because of Arsenal, because the Invincibles, and he scored some just phenomenal goals. And we won't see a striking talent like the way he had such a memorable goal, a memorable finish. I don't think for for a while. Favorite game that you have attended in person can be any sport, but favorite one you've been to in person? Uh, that's a great question. I think the one that sticks in memory recently is um, when I saw Fulham get promoted against Aston Villa at Wembley a couple of years back. I had a Fulham season ticket when I first moved to London. Uh, had a great kind of year or so down at the cottage and to see them then get promoted and all the emotion on the fans you know with the fans around me and there's a lot of like families and fathers and son kind of mixes it was it was a really nice day to be a part of and also to see kind of like Tom Kearney, Ryan Sessegnon, Alexander Mitrovic tearing it up at Wembley was was fun. And finally favorite how did I get here moment you know just that moment you kind of realize like wow I've I've done something of some sort with my career and this is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that was probably, um, there was a panel I was on at, up at Google a couple of years ago about like the future of football with AI. And it was a bit of a, um, it was kind of a bit of a waffly panel and, and not a lot of uh, like great anecdotes from it. But I was on the panel next to Big Sam, Sam Allardyce, which was a kind of, yeah, how the hell did I get here moment. And, uh, you know, as any panel with Sam Allardyce about AI, uh, and what you'd expect from that, he called me a geek as well. Is that I look like a geek? So it was, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, didn't really know how to react to that. But I think at the end of that, I walked out and I was like, it's just a bit surreal. Um, but definitely showed me like how far I'd come in the last last few years. It was really fun. Oh, Big Sam's a good story to end with. Tom Warville, thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Cool, cheers, Paul. Back in the True Media studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks to Tom Warville for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Warville, W-O-R-V-I-L-L-E, and read his work on The Athletic as of this week. I'm joined now by Albert Larcata, True Media's Senior Director of Business Development and Data Science. Albert was also at the OptiPro Forum in London. So Albert, one thing, we kind of touched, touched on this last week about Tom's presentation. It was you know, relatively simple in the sense that it's about goal kicks and he's not using tracking data, uh, player tracking data. He's sticking with the event stuff, but I still like how practical it is. You know, it's something that you can hand to coaches. It's easy to understand. Uh, and it gets you thinking about, you know, should they try something different? Uh, here's what happens when we do this. Here's what happens when we do that. Very simple stuff, very practical. And I really like that about it. So what did you kind of take away from the conversation that I had with Tom? Yeah, so uh, a few things. F- first of all, a couple of comments on your uh, on your interview there. One wow. is you're getting into breaking news a lot here. <laughs> you, I, I'm pretty sure you, you semi-broke the uh, Big Data Bowl 2.0 with Mike Lopez a few weeks ago. A little bit. And now you're kind of getting Warville's first uh, athletic interview. So good job on that. Good work. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the second thing I'll say is 
an extremely bad missed opportunity by you. Uh-oh. You actually had the first interview with someone who joined the athletic and there was no joke about are you joining why are you joining the athletic on yeah. the interview. Yeah, I dropped the ball on that. It was even in my notes and then for whatever, the question came out the wrong way and I think Tom got the joke even though I didn't say it, but yeah, that's a that's a missed opportunity on my part and I can do nothing but hang my head in shame. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. The third point is he kind of made fun of you for not asking him that question. Right. He was expecting it and I still didn't come through. Yeah. He put it on a tee for you, Paul. Oh, well, bad job by me. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, sorry. I build you up and I tear you down. Yeah, I'll take it. So related to Tom. Yeah, I, I think I've talked about this before on a on, on a pod in the past, but, you know, his journey where he started as a blog, worked his way to Opta, worked to Athletic. The, the biggest piece of advice that I give people, maybe not the biggest, one of the pieces of advice that I give people who ask about, you know, how you get started in the industry, what skills do you need, you know, who should I network with, all that. From the outside, my impression is the the when you say you want to work in sports analytics, what you're really saying is you want to work for a team. You want to work for the Red Sox, the Bruins, the Marlins, whoever. And there are so many other mm-hmm. opportunities to work in sports analytics within the industry that do not are not explicitly working for teams, meaning you're not on the payroll of, of those teams. I, it's it's often the jobs in this market are better for the one the, the ones that don't work for non teams, you know, better hours, better pay, better work life balance, all that kind of stuff. So that would just be my feedback. And Tom, kind of his career path just made me think of that even more. How, you know, he's been pretty successful now at a young age. He's, you know, staff writer for the Athletic, had a good job with the, with uh, Opta, and has never worked for a team. And I think that that's something that job seekers, young people who are getting into the industry, that mm-hmm. they should know. Don't limit your search. Don't limit your options to working for a team. There are plenty of other jobs in sports industry like we have that are great jobs as well and all we do is work on sports too so consider that as you're in your job search yeah it's a good point i think you know i've gotten questions from you know people looking to get into the industry sometimes they are as simple as what other companies you know they'll ask are you hiring well we're not hiring who else is like you because i do think that is kind of a tricky thing if you're in college you know how do you learn about these different companies and it takes some work or networking or find the right person or website, whatever it is, it's, it's not always the easiest thing to come to from the outside to figure out, you know, who's a good, whatever data tracking company or provider, whatever it might be. So yeah, that's a good point. There's so much more than just the teams and you know, it's probably, I'm speculating, but it's probably a little bit easier for those non-team jobs, just in the sense that, like you said, everyone wants to work for whatever major league baseball team or NFL team, like that's a glamorous job. So you might have even a better shot at getting in with some of these other companies that just won't get the volume of applications that a team is going to get. Sure. Yeah. The, the demand side is definitely true. The, the, you know, for every, whatever Red Sox analytics or or, or opening, there's going to be 500 people applying, but there's a supply thing too, right? There are just more jobs outside of teams, right? There's only so many analysts, developer R and D roles, and as you said, with data companies, software companies, uh, media, gambling, like there's just a whole world out there of jobs in sports analytics where you're working with pretty much the same data, um, solving comparable problems that, in my opinion, job seekers should be l- looking after those jobs just as much as they are team jobs. 
Yeah, and even non-sports companies. I mean, we're going to a Google meetup before Sloan in a couple weeks, and Google has you know Alec Patani, who used to be the ESPN with us, and he basically works on sports there, and they have other people. Uh, you know, that's a very extreme example of a giant company, of course, but it's just there are even non-sports companies that have these jobs. Right. One thing I wanted to kind of touch on is this is a very simple point, but it's hey, it's good that there's an analytics writer opening at the Athletic and Tom is taking it. Just because analytics on the whole like needs some of that continued exposure. And when I think about what helped normalize analytics for me in other sports, it wasn't just, you know, bigger sites like your baseball prospectus or your football outsiders. It was also people talking and writing for bigger sites like John Hollinger and Rob Nyer at ESPN, two of the guys that for me were more prominent in my kind of analytics upbringing. And like the athletic is not at ESPN's level yet, of course. And there are plenty of writers who will work advanced stats and articles across a lot of platforms, but this is a good step. The fact that, especially in the UK where uh, soccer of course is king, that they're going to get regular analytics content from Tom. We've already seen him start working things into other articles on The Athletic as well. So it's, it's a good thing. I'm excited to see what Tom can do there. Me too. Good luck, Tom. Good luck, Tom. Go get him. All right. Thanks, Albert. And thanks again to Tom Morville for joining us on the show. Next week, we'll continue the soccer theme with a director of soccer analytics for an MLS club with the MLS season kicking off next weekend. Expected Value and True Media are also off to the NFL Combine in Indianapolis next week. We'll be recording some future episodes, and please give us a shout if you're interested in meeting up. You can reach us on Twitter at True Media Sports or via email, expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com, and we'll put you in touch with the right people. And of course, please continue spreading the word about the show by sharing on social media, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. We'll be right back.